Hello and welcome to the Just Enough to Be Dangerous podcast. And today we have some a good show for you. We're going to discuss I-bonds, how, what they are, how effective they are at fighting inflation. We're going to talk about securities, basically comparisons between ETFs, stocks, index funds, mentioned derivatives. Uh, we're talking about stock splits. Amazon had a stock split. Uh, a couple other well-known companies have had stock splits. What are they? Why do people do them? And we're actually going to start off with stock splits. Uh, Nick, that's your topic. You want to take it away? Sure thing. Yeah. So brought this up because Amazon, as you mentioned, did have a split this past Monday, I believe. They split 20 to 1. Also had a relatively large buyback in there, but separate topic. Um, Google is apparently supposed to do the same in mid-July. And as you mentioned earlier when we were chatting before we started recording, Shopify also has as well. Been a, a large chain of them in the past couple of weeks. Amazon had... Uh, val or Amazon stocks were up around 2,500, I believe, at the time yeah, the split so, actually yeah. happened. And... One of the primary reasons for splits, as far as I'm seeing effectively, and as far as I know, is to make them more approachable for smaller retail investors, let's say, uh, right? Putting down $2,500 may very well be your trade for the month. So yep. it makes it a much more compelling thing to be able to say, all right, let me put down, what would it be like 400 or something or 300, still get a very sizable chunk of investment opportunity and potential gain there have some leftovers effectively yeah exactly like you said it's about making it palatable for like more normal everyday investors to be able to purchase stock it makes that stock more liquid for investors it's actually a signal that the executive uh team expects there to be strong future growth that's historically one of the reasons there it's it's it, it, it doesn't have any real effect on the underlying uh stock value itself market capitalization of the business remains the same their their value is the same you're just taking an existing stock and then and splitting it up into fractions. Yep. So on, on that note, actually, one thing, this was crazy because I don't think I'd actually heard this number yet. On the note about good future growth, effectively, as a reason to do a split, Amazon's 2021 total revenue was $470 billion. Yep. They, were, with, uh, they are nearing half a trillion in revenue with yep. $33 billion profit on that, if I saw it correctly. Yeah, I was seeing 35, but that's, yeah. Which of some just, analysts error. Yeah, yeah so. it just boggles my mind. There's yeah. a single company that is doing half a trillion dollars in business in a year. Yep. Granted, it was crazy year for them. 2022, it may settle down a little bit coming out of COVID. I know that a bunch of stocks, especially in the like tech sector, retail also, but in a different way, were going bonkers through the pandemic but either way just like the fact that's a thing is still just crazy yeah i'm curious to see amazon did report um, a down quarter somewhat recently as well uh, due yep. to sticks and shipping concerns and i'm interested to see how that's actually going to continue to affect them uh in the future basically anybody who has like physical goods they're shipping around um my understanding is ports are starting to open up a bit logistically here in the u.s but across the world in china and stuff like that where they're still experiencing new covid flares and stuff like that you think there's still going to be a bit of a i think that this is a good moment for them to do this stock split to signal that, hey, we think we're strong. We think we're going to go, you know, well, even in the face of these potential challenges. Yeah. Yeah, I know Target's been caught uh, recently a bit, too. They've come out and said that they've had some weird inventory stuff, just like with a ton of excess, I believe. Yeah, because so of... people were buying things. People, yeah. So they have a lot of like old styles and things that they want to sell. They said they're going to slash prices and have lowered their expected revenue because of this. Right. Yeah, that's what it was. It was with that guidance that they gave. And I forgot about the app. 
Yep. Yep. So one other thing I like on the topic of splits themselves, one thing that was curious to me though, right. With this point of making it more approachable for retail, you know, a, a lot of brokerages have been doing fractional shares for a decent little while now, even super hip <laughs> things like cash app, let's say they were yeah, one of the ones yeah. who really pushed that back at the beginning, I believe when they yep. first started it. So I do wonder how much does that actually matter now that it is easy to Amazon's 2,500, you can just get 0.1 of a share. Yeah. So I think for an average retail investor, those things are nice, but if you're more institutional, I think having the ability to own the full stock is still going to be something they want. It also lets people, one point that I was seeing with this, in Amazon's case in particular, the, what am I thinking of? The index, the top 30 shares, DJI. Yes. Yeah, Dow Jones. So what they're looking for here is potentially to be listed as one of the 30 and like having that kind of stock price that comes in the middle of all the DJI is like easy to get slotted into that. Whereas if they were still trading at 2,500, you're not going to have an index track a fractional yeah. share. Yeah. It's not something that's going to happen. So, and while I don't think that's like entirely the reason they did it, I can see a lot of reasons that make a stock split more palatable to institutional investors, which at the size of a company like Amazon, that's who they're really courting yeah. with this. They're it, not really courting you or yeah. I. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. It, to add to the point with the Dow Jones in particular, I believe they're the odd one out among like the NASDAQ and the S&P because I believe yep. they're also price weighted. Yep. So in addition to like Amazon being the outlier, they, that would also make them more, how do I say this? That would, if they swung, that would over, over affect the Dow Jones average because right. it is an average, like it's a, yep. well, it's a price weighted average, not just, you know, we are listing these end companies and yep. they're all treated equally. Yep. Yeah. So the last thing we were talking about with, with splits just before we started recording, a lot of people might know about the classic kind of counter example to splitting of Berkshire Hathaway's class A stock, which as of the, this time of recording is trading for $439,780, which <laughs> I, I, I looked this up too. That is more than three times the median net worth of the average American citizen. So if you get four people together, you could buy an share for, <laughs> for the, for their four net, like for the net worth of the four of them combined. Yeah. The, there, there are sure. people who have literally, sorry to butt yeah, in, but there, there are people who literally have bought a share and left it as like inheritance to their children. That's like what that's. <laughs> and it's big enough that it counts against the gift tax, which is yeah, the worst yeah, part yeah, of that, that. That's... But yeah, so uh, yeah. just continuing on that for a little, because it is crazy. There, There is a class B that maybe is a little bit less well-known because it's otherwise just a normal price share. It's like yeah. three right now. Can you maybe talk about the difference between class sure. B and class A? Yeah, so there, there's a couple, the primary for kind of everyday use is that class B's voting rights are smaller relative to the price. There are also some limitations on A, you can redeem for B shares at any time, but not vice versa. And a few other things, it's, it's not entirely clear to be honest. I didn't spend a whole lot of time on it. I know those two are true, but do you have anything else that you're thinking of in particular? So stock classes can be arbitrary, right? It's up to the discretion of the business and it really depends. Voting rights is typically the number one thing when it comes to the different classes of stock. It's typically a, like a class A stock might have a certain amount of multiple and voting rights versus like class B. I think in the case of it's either Snapchat or Facebook, I forget which one, but they have a class E and it's like a 10 to one on like their voting. So it's, okay. it, it, yeah. And that was actually, I know, the other thing that I think it's Snapchat, Spiegel did that to ensure that it, when they went public and he still has that, 
that he would retain all voting rates um, in the business. So he's like the, most of the direction of the business versus like sense. investors yep. into it. Zuckerberg did the same thing, which is why, uh, to a similar degree, which is why they're more able to being less subject to the public pressure in their business. Now, as a counterpoint to your counterpoint about Berkshire Hathaway, we also talked about like Walmart and Walmart having yes. done 11 stock splits between 1970 and like 2000. And what's interesting about that is they're the exact opposite of Berkshire. They've never been above like $120 a share or something like that, or I think 125. And when they split, we're talking back in the nineties, they were worth like $12 a share, right? I think something like, and I looked up before the show, $12 a share is roughly like $26 a share in today's money. So nothing super outrageous, like it's squirrely, like it's, it's a very digestible share price for you and me. I mean, the question you asked me was like, Hey, why might a business go ahead and do this? Have you ever company? You know, is there, have, have you seen any reason, possible reason for that? And I told you I had a reason and, and I do, and it has nothing to do with the stock price needing to be more liquid, purely being used as a great signal towards investors. If you look at the stock price for Walmart between 1970 and 2000, after 2000, there's a flat period for about 10 years and then it shoots up. But for that, you know, 30 year run, they were a continuous growth stock. You're talking more double digit growth performance on a yearly basis for, for Walmart. And I think what they wanted to do with that, those stock splits is continuously signal, Hey, we're still growing. Hey, we're still going to be our stock. Let's generate interest from investors back into this. And that's really the reason they did that. I don't think there was really a liquidity issue with Walmart stocks. Alternatively though, and this is purely speculation on my part, but like you have a stock that's worth $124 right now. If you had never done a stock split ever, and you just kept running that stock up and you kept doing that growth, we're talking the same issue the other stocks have being thousands yep. of dollars. So doing it prematurely doesn't really have any negative consequences. In fact, if you're going to be a strong growth pick, hey, why not? Yep. That, that's a good point. I, I want to say all of those 11 splits that you mentioned were two to ones. Yes. So yep. yeah, uh, if I can do the math on that quickly, that means that a share, if they're trading at, what is Walmart trading? 120 at? something. So yeah, a single share, if all pricing was the same, otherwise it would be worth 2,048 times that much. Right. <laughs> those yeah. All so two to one splits. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. All right. That's, that's that really the reason for that, especially yep. since they've been such a strong growth pick. Okay. Let's uh, do you have anything else on, on that topic? Too I don't think about? so. Yeah. It was just, it was the Could thing it, where I saw, I knew that they were yeah, a thing. Just and they, interest. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. They didn't really affect market cap or anything. So why do that yep. was the motivation for it. So cool. Okay. Yes. And for the next few topics, we're going to talk about something that kind of uh, dovetails off of our previous episode. On the previous episode, we discussed inflation, how it's running rampant, how interest rates are being risen to curb inflation. But uh, to talk about something in the same lane as that, we want to talk about how you can actually, you know, what the different financial vehicles available to people are, how they can combat and help you combat inflation and grow your assets against inflation. And big disclaimer for this part, uh, we are not financial professionals. This is not finance and uh, finance advice. Seek a qualified professional. We are basically two idiots talking about things we have little understanding of. We know just enough to be dangerous about exactly. it. Exactly. Just, uh-huh. yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> this is, um, cool. So the first topic that we have here are, and going off of that, what an I-bond is, it is a government backed investment vehicle that is guaranteed against inflation. So it has an interest rate or a a growth rate that is always adjusted against inflation. And that in my notes here, basically it is a fixed rate of growth plus two times the semi-annual rate of inflation plus the fixed rate times the semi-annual rate of inflation. So what this means is given the rate of inflation at any given point in time, your asset is guaranteed to grow higher than that rate of a bit wordy on the, um, 
formula there. My apologies. But the goal of this is basically to protect against uh, inflation for your money. And do you want to talk about some things with that? Yeah. Sure. Yeah. It's also worth noting here. One thing that I saw originally, because you mentioned that there's a fixed rate component and the variable rate yes. tied to CPI. The fixed rate is actually just zero right now. So ah. it just doesn't matter. It is only that CPI part. And that fixed rate is fixed for the duration of bond. So it will always be zero if you buy them right now. So I, I will also say upfront, I did actually buy into some, I, or well, into a I bond when these, when the rate was first adjusted last month, I believe up to 9% because yeah, nothing else is close to that right now. And so it's a good vehicle again, to make sure that you have some money that's covered against inflation. The big caveat here is that it's limited to $10,000 a year per person. Yep. Uh, and actually an additional $5,000 from your tax refund. Right, from tax refund. So it can be very useful to guard against some of it, of course, but you can't put your entire savings into it, let's say. It is only for 10 or 15 in the case of a tax return, 1000 a year. But that's actually fine because in the case of things like house purchases or like college funds, this is a very secure vehicle yes. to put your money in. Yes. And if I'm not mistaken, a lot of I-bonds, if not all I-bonds, I'm not sure, have 30-year maturity. So basically, in this case, you could let your money sit in there for up to 30 years, guarded against inflation. At the very least, so you'll be able to take that out when you need it to use for those things. There is the concern, however, that if you take it out before the first five years, you, you forfeit the previous three months' interest, so you don't necessarily get the full return on that. But generally speaking, that's fine. You're actually still better off than you would be. Like, let's say you need it for a down payment two years from now. You're still going to be better off even forfeiting the three months uh, of interest than you would have been had you put your money into, I don't know, like allied savings. Yeah, account, just right? the simple like, savings. Yeah, yeah. 9% right now compared to 0.9% on the yeah. savings accounts. It's, it's a much better vehicle even for a limited amount of money. As you mentioned, I do just want like, doubly state. So interest is compounded semi-annually. So that's when, you know, the interest that you gained is tacked back onto the principal. And that's, that money is now what's used as the interest calculation going forward. Yep. And interest is calculated monthly of those three months that you were mentioning. Like you said, it's really not that much of a hit after the first year. It's a very good pick yep. right now. It's actually really one of the only picks right now. As we will talk about in just a little bit. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> one thing I do want to mention though, and this is tangentially related, but irks me. I'm in cybersecurity for those who don't know me and treasure direct website is terrible. You don't log in with a normal password. You log in by, by using your mouse to click on a virtual keyboard to enter your password, which is not case sensitive. That's terrible. That's actually um, terrible. If anyone out there is listening to this, who happens to work in the treasury and has some kind of influence over the laws or regulations around that. Please remove that. It's really dumb. And all it's doing is de-incentivizing password managers, which is like exactly counter to what you should be doing. So yep. from, from the other cybersecurity people out there, thank you in advance, please. Yep. <laughs> um, so bring it back yes. into the financial realm. <laughs> I understand your anger there. Let you go through with that. We'll let you get it out. There are alternative bonds. So there's treasury bonds, which have different rates, not guaranteed against inflation, but unlikely for you to you know lose your money unless the government collapses. Fingers crossed. Um, probably fine. Probably <laughs> fine. And then there's things like EE bonds. So EE bonds have a guaranteed doubling after 20 years. They lose out to I bonds if the period of inflation is high, right? If you think that this 9% inflation is going to last the next 20 years, wish you really better hope it doesn't because that government collapse will happen. Will happen. <laughs> it will happen. Yeah. For, for reference to the fixed rate for double E bonds right now is 0.1%. So yeah, yeah it's maybe not the best 
it will it will beat out if inflation does return back to normal two percent you will do better than the approximately 48.5% expected inflation that you would hit over 20 years, because as you mentioned, it does automatically double. However, in the short term, up until that time, not necessarily best. I think this is the classic. These are the things that you might get when you turn 18, for example, uh, that you're born. Exactly. Right? That's what my grandmother got exactly. me. Exactly. Her turn 20 and I had a couple, like a couple thousand dollars worth of bonds, yep. you know. Yeah. But like for yep. that, they're a great little thing. Doubles when you redeem them. Cool. But yeah, no, not a great thing for anything remotely short term. Yep. Nope, not at all. The reason I want to talk about these is a lot of conversation on the personal finance subreddits that I follow and things like that around I-bonds. And there's a lot of kind of confusion on why they're good and how the actual interest rate is calculated and how that affects the growth of them over time and why they're actually the only bet we have right now. And we're going to go more into that in a little bit. The reality is right now the stock market is tanking, yep. right, across the board. And if you had money in stocks, whether that's an index fund through your 401k or maybe just bought an index fund, whatever, like that's tanking. If you pick stocks, I'm sorry. I'm sorry for your loss. I'm sorry yeah. for your loss. And if you pick stocks on margin, I'm even more so. But we're not going to go into that right now. But the reality is that their bonds and specifically I-bonds are one of the few things that actually have a you know, strong positive growth rate right now. And every other vehicle is basically underwater very yep. heavily. Yep. So without getting too much into it, because I think we're going to cover this more generally in just a second. Yep. Bonds in general are the things that you end up buying like opposite stocks on the opposite end of right. it's more when secure. you buy them. They're more secure, lower interest. But as you just mentioned, stocks are in the dumpster right now. So, right. so you take what you got. Exactly. And just classically, let's say we're in a, we were in a good economic period right now, right? If you're, I'm 20, God, I'm turning 28. I'm turning 28. That's how old I am. There we go. I was like 25. No, that's not wrong. That's not right. I'm like two. Anyway, when you're young, right? If you're in a good economic period, you really wouldn't consider bonds, right? You would basically, for most investors, throw this into an ETF of some kind because it's more risky, but you can afford that risk when you're younger because your time horizon for cashing out of this theoretically is something like 30 to 40 years in the future. However, when things are bad like this, you this is really a time when you should look at your portfolio and I wouldn't pull anything out, never pull anything out, but maybe rebalancing a certain portion of funds that you need in the short term into bonds is okay. Maybe take another you know, 10% or sort of 15% or something and rebalance your portfolio to be a little more secure in these treasury, these bonds backed by the government. Cool. So we're going to, we're just, so this one, we can keep talking about this and move into the more general side of this. I have a couple more points on bonds that aren't limited to the uh, government backed bonds. So for the rest of the podcast, basically what Nick and I are going to do is there's a whole bunch of different types of securities. They're all underwater except bonds. Even some bonds are underwater, so very limited. But we're going to talk about what they are, what their risk profile looks like, how much you could typically stand to gain from these versus each other, and, and where you know why you might invest into one thing versus something else. And I guess the first thing I want to mention is other types of bonds uh, that are aren't backed by the government. Those are called corporate corporate bonds are the same thing. They're a bond. There is some security, but instead of being guaranteed by the government. They're guaranteed by a, a corporation. So you give them some money, they give you the bond, they guarantee some interest rate on top of that over a period of time. 
And the difference in this case is your risk is so more substantial because uh, let's be realistic, corporations do not have the staying power that something like the United States government does. So in this case, if a business goes under while you have that, there's a big problem with that. Corporate bonds are fine if you think a corporation is going to have strong performance over the time horizon you need those bonds to exist. So if you have a two-year time horizon and you think, I don't know, I don't know, Target's selling a bond. I don't think they sell bonds, but let's say they're selling a bond and you think they're going to do well over two years. That's fine. Target's probably going to still be around. But there are businesses that are highly volatile. And if you buy a bond from them and they go under, they're called junk bonds. They're businesses that you don't have strong confidence in them existing. They offer a bond to hopefully get some fast cash to stave off their own demise. Uh, the reality is they'll go under, under pretty quickly and you'll be out your money. Those are other types of bonds. I generally don't really advocate corporate bonds. Like, there's no reason to do corporate bonds. I don't think most businesses offer bonds yeah. anymore no, I'm, for that reason. Right. My, my understanding is that with the exception of treasury stuff, it's effectively not anything that's used much anymore. You still also do have municipal, state, and local bond, and you can throw the infamous uh, mortgage-backed security in this room, too. Oh, yeah, too. sure. Um, but other than that, yeah, I, I don't think they're really anything that people would consider a common investment vehicle. Cool. So that covers bonds. I guess I'm going to talk generally for a second. We can dive in more specifically to the various securities. But I have a whole list here, and I'm kind of going to list them off for everybody. So I'll list them all off, and I'll list what I think their risk profile is. And then, Nick, you jump in when I'm wrong and tell me I'm wrong. So no risk, low return, bonds. We just covered that. I'm not going to go into it. We just discussed a lot. I will guess I'll add different bonds to different maturity dates. So there's 2, 5, 10, 20, 30, X, but that's the most common ones. High risk, potentially high returns, individual stock picking. And then after that, we have capped risk for buyers and potentially high reward derivatives. If you're a seller of a derivative, that is a different story, yes. but we're talking specifically on the buying side and uh, derivatives, we're not going to go into it right now. We'll talk about it a little more in a little bit. Yeah. We'll um, also probably do an entire episode on them at some later date because wow, is there ever a lot? A lot. It's very complex. Uh, do a time. I probably talk for two hours on derivatives. You could we'll have, fit it into yeah, a you can discussion. have entire like college courses on it. Exactly. So, yeah. so then extreme risk, higher returns, leveraged ETFs, especially over the short term, low adjusted risk, medium returns, index funds, ETFs. Yep. Nodding my head here. The, the only thing I would say is I'm not sure if you know, triple leverage ETF or something I would say is extreme. It's definitely more than a normal ETF, but versus literally burying yourself in derivatives. Long-term. Long-term. Long leverage. So, sure. Yeah. So we're ta if we're talking like long-term horizons here, like a leverage sure. ETF does not even track the end. It goes to zero in the long-term horizon. So your risk is 100% over a long enough sure. horizon. So that's why I included it as a the risk. If you're being savvy and you want to do that over a month or something, or if you think there's going to be strong growth for a month, a day, that, right? Because the whole, the whole point of a leverage ETF is to like you know, triple whatever the return on the index this tracking would be for that given time period. Yeah. I actually think that the triple leverage ETF might have actually more risk than just an individual derivative, but I don't want to... Yeah. Like, it, well, we can yeah. debate that at a later time. Cool. That's really like the list of securities I have seen. There are ETF sub comma different things, yeah, but that's yeah. like the general category of, of securities that you might see as you're investing. I think that where we want to start off with this and correct me if I'm wrong here, probably talk about stocks versus index funds and ETFs, right? That's pretty the classic example that retail investors are going to run into. Yeah. I don't think many. 
Yeah. I will also mention just, I, I would consider them in a different class, but they're probably worth mentioning here just for completeness sake. I, I wouldn't consider like a normal savings account, a real investment vehicle, but it is worth mentioning because it is. And then you've also got CDs, certificates of deposit in the same realm of spawn. So you can like yeah. technically different things, but you can treat them basically the same, just on a slightly shorter time scale, low mid months to low years. But yeah, no, other than that, that's all everything else that I had was just mentioning those at very least. Gotcha. Okay, cool. So yeah, let's talk about stocks. Uh, talk about why picking individual stocks is maybe not the smartest decision. Talk about, and it's, I said not always, but if you're savvy, you're right, that changes. Yep. If you have time, you have to do it yeah. carefully, as yeah. well as carefully as yeah. you can. And about <laughs> yeah, I guess I should say, from right now, we're talking from the perspective of an average investor yes. who is not primarily like a finance professional. Yep. So picking stocks, picking stocks, you sign up with the brokerage, you look for a stock you want, you pay some money, you get the stock, you own it. That's a very simple equation. And you know, what you're hoping there is over a long enough time horizon, the stock goes up, you make money and you're happy, like it increased by some percent. However, if that doesn't happen, you're now out whatever the original cost of the stock was, it'll be trading lower than what you bought it for. You sell it, uh, you're now out whatever the difference is between your original price and the, the price that you sold it for. Uh, right. But very basic. I'm sure like everybody may, maybe not everybody, but a lot of people understand that's basically like basic stock trading and how that works. So now the downsides of that are when you pick an individual stock, you're subject incredible volatility from that one business, right? It, it, you, like the stability of that business determines the growth or failure of your investment and the longer that a business has been around, the bigger that business is, the val how valuable it is, like it's market capitalization. These are all things that are signals for, okay, picking that one stock's not so bad. And what, if you just owned Amazon for the last 30 years, uh, 20 years, 20, 22 20, years, so it's 20 something. Yeah. Yeah. For the last 20 something years, right up until about two months ago, three months ago, you would have been perfectly fine. And then most really happy. And then 35% of your value would have been wiped out in a day. Yep. <laughs> yep. Same thing applies with Facebook, potentially even with a bigger extent. If you bought it, I think it was 05, maybe when they officially started or when they went public, would have been great up until earlier this year where they literally lost 24% of their market cap at the end of trading. Like as soon as the bell rung and they had yep. an, or, and they like released their earnings report, 24% yep. just off the table. And now I can go with an even more extreme example. And I know these are all tech stocks, but I promise you this is advice that applies to, or not advice, but explanation. Because this is not advice. Yes, yes. Explanation. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is not that thing. <laughs> um, because this explanation applies more generally to any stock. If you bought Coinbase at IPO and you put a lot of money into Coinbase, let's say you put $100,000 into as of two weeks ago, your $100,000 would be worth about $25,000. Yep. So that would be, and they lost 75% of their value over the course of a single day. And I actually think it got as bad as 80% at one point and then went back down. That sounds so right. Yeah. yeah. It was very red. Yeah. It was yep. very red. Yeah. Yeah. Very red, <laughs> very red. And whatever, this is, we are not talking about crypto. I don't want to talk yep. about crypto or anything like that, but the point is just to illustrate like, Picking single stock subjects you to a really high degree of volatility and risk in picking that single stock. Even if you think you're secure over a long enough time horizon, you're not, right? That's yeah. just how Any, that works out. Anything can and will eventually happen regardless of what you end up picking. You can go with the most secure, consumer stable thing and eventually the pandemic will happen. Right. And then exactly. it'll go up and then it'll go down. Exactly. And at that point, your money will be wiped out. So, right, there, there is... Um, a lot of risks doing individual stock picking. It can 
be a good strategy, right? Like I said, if you if you sold before the crash happened, you'd make a lot of money. But the good reality, on you. yeah, good on you. But the reality with this one is, if you're holding a security indefinitely, there's no way that you can timing a market doesn't work. And again, you're always subject to some crash or something like yeah. that happening. We can extrapolate from this well from first principles. All right, so I own one stock and I want to start reducing the risk of that stock. So you could start off by saying, all right, maybe I'll buy other tech stocks. So now I own Amazon, Google, Facebook. You can someone. diversify. Yep. You, can diverse, you can diversify it. And at that crash for Facebook didn't affect Google or Amazon nearly as bad. There was actually a pretty sufficient lag between Amazon's loss in value, Facebook's, and Google hasn't really been hit that bad. Not particularly. Um, but when you do that, you, you package these stocks and you say you spread your money over these stocks. And now you've reduced the impact of a downturn on that because you're saying, hey, like, yeah, Facebook got hit and lost 50% value or Coinbase got hit. But I spread my stuff over 50 companies. So like I actually up in some cases and bounced out and I actually am sitting right where I was when I put my money into it. Yep. I didn't grow anything, but I didn't lose anything. Cool. So let's take that even further. Well, maybe now you just diversify over the entire economy, right? You pick the 20 sectors and you say, I want stocks from the highest performing businesses in each sector. You package that together and like you, you're tracking, maybe there's a guy, I can't, I can't do it without saying the word because that's <laughs> like, that is what, so there's a group of, of stocks that exist and, and there it's composed of the high performing stocks from different areas of the economy. And naturally, if one sector in the economy has a downturn, it doesn't mean another sector is going to have a downturn. So now you have diversified, spread your risk over multiple sectors and you have an experience as harsh of a loss in money as you would. Um, if you're only in tech or if you're only in, a, especially if you're only in a single business in tech and what these are called are index funds. And the reason I was laughing there and Nick was nodding along laughing too, was I was like, man, what's an alternative word for index, which is a group of things that <laughs> yeah, like okay. an assortment of stocks, yeah. <laughs> an assortment of stocks. So stemming from this, there's what's called index funds. Now index funds, what they do is they buy positions in, they buy positions to match an index. So an index is that grouping of stocks. They may buy some portion of all of that index to try to track as closely to that index as they can or beat it, hopefully beat it. But they're not really that risky. They're not super leveraged. They don't have a lot of debt or anything like that. They are just tracking that index. And the idea is by being diversified across multiple areas in the economy that you'll be able to grow with the economy. And if something bad happens to one of those sectors, you do not experience the full brunt of that loss because you've diversified across this area. And because it's complicated and requires a bunch of capital to do, there are, you know, brokerages that already offer these as packaged securities that you can buy into and trade. And typically your 401k is composed of some type of split between like bonds and index funds yeah. uh, or ETFs. And going into that, what ETFs are basically pass-through holding companies that exist to hold different sections of stock and shares. They only differ from index funds in that you can trade them whenever versus an index fund that can only be traded at 4 p.m. at closing of like market day. I know it's a lot to get out of my mouth. Uh, do you want to add anything? So I'm trying to think if there's anything yep. to add here directly. Um, I, I guess just to reiterate, if you were to try and pull this off manually and even without waiting appropriately, let's just say you went around and you bought one of every stock effectively, this would cost you far more than you could probably afford to get the kind of stability that you're looking for, which is effectively the point of all these. As Ian mentioned, you have this effectively large pool of capital that ends up getting split to buy the stocks. 
and then split the other way, whoops, with who owns, with who owns the shares in the case of an ETF or an index fund, who owns what percentage of it. Yep, exactly. If you're paying for the convenience of having somebody else manage that for you, deal with all the overhead, deal with any rebalancing they have to do analysis of the broader market, yep. all of those things that you may want to do yourself. And to be honest with you, if you have the money to do it, like great on you, but like most of us don't, and we are looking for stability and growth so we can retire yep. and not be destitute. Yep. <laughs> it's the simple things in life. No. The simple things in life. <laughs> but yeah, I, I also more than that, honestly, even I would say more so than just having the money to do it, it's just having the time to do it. Like just yep. being a thing like that. Sure. Sure. Maybe sure. one person could do, but yeah, no. I, I, I know it's possible they can do it. I have a friend. She actually really likes building her own portfolio and managing, including diversifying that, but it's a full-time hobby yeah. for her. It is yeah. like, like I spend what, 20 hours playing video games, another 30 hours, maybe programming and then like work. Yeah. She spends like 20 hours balancing her portfolio and dealing. It's like a pretty significant amount of time on top of that. So you can definitely do it. It's just way more time than most you're, people. You're very yeah. dedicated to do that. You're yeah. very, you're exactly. You're very dedicated. You're very dedicated and you're disciplined. Yes. There's a lot. You yes. have to have a very, you're disciplined. You have a good thesis. There's a lot of effort involved yep. in that. We built this up in first principles, right? Talked about the buying one stock, buying multiple stocks in the same sector buying a diversification across the sector, having someone else package it for you and sell it to you. There's the other side of this where there are risky packagings of securities. And we talked about this briefly earlier, the leverage, and I don't want to go too far into it, but what they do is they basically take on options and other debt to increase the return for an ETF. Uh, the thing is they're inherently unstable. Over time, they actually don't track the index that they're based on. They might track it on the day, but they won't track it on a month or, or six months. And they're used for more savvy kind of people investing in these areas. They don't want to expose themselves or manage individual puts or calls or anything, but they can have, do the same thing with ETF, uh, with regular ETFs. They just have another company do it for them. They are interesting though, because you make money with them. But I just wanted to mention there as like an asterisk, like not all ETFs are like yeah. super safe yeah. ETFs. Not, and, and not everything is here is the NASDAQ in ETF form, or here is the S&P in an ETF form. You can, I, right. you can also, as you mentioned, ETFs aren't, and index funds aren't just whole market. You can have a yep. per sector ETF or even for what I would consider relatively small sectors. I actually didn't yep. know this up until recently, but there is a cybersecurity sector ETF. Which has huh. 15 different stocks that it tracks. Yeah, and yeah. so it's. And that's volatile. Yeah, exactly. That's, that's it is way more it is volatile than like a NASDAQ volatile. ETF. Yep. Yep. Um, yep. So, yeah, there, there's all kinds of um, options within <laughs> the, the. Right. Yeah. It's, hard, it's, it's hard. very yeah, hard to say. Yeah. Yeah, but like, <laughs> and, and it's, that option has nothing to do with the other options, but it's hard to not conflate the terminology. Yep. There yeah. are many possible ETFs that you could there invest you in. There yeah. you go. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And ETFs, really, it's just whoever has the capital and the time to put it together, do an ETF or like whatever. I could put an ETF together of literally anything. Yeah. Um, cool. <laughs> but yeah, the thing is right now, and this is again what we talked about bonds first, is regardless of what ETF you're currently balanced into in your 401k or your IRA, there's a good chance it's underwater at the moment. So like, it's not, it is definitely not, this, there is no... There is basically no security that guarantees a risk-free growth in your investment. It only guarantees differing rates of risk. Yeah, some, but again, the U.S. government's not going to collapse. Yeah, we really hope it doesn't, yep. but there's not a, there's a non-zero possibility, yep. which is very low, but it's non-zero. So you have risk there. It is all about balancing risk-reward, what options you take. Said it again. <laughs> what vehicles you use. Yeah, path what paths you walk. Yeah just determine yeah. which side of that you're landing on. Are you landing on the 
it's a one in a quadrillion chance the upside is very small or is it the there's a 50 50 but i double my money or something like that it's also put some numbers to this because I, I looked these up as you mentioned basically anything that tracks a market individual stocks included here are down in what i would consider short to midterm about two years yep. where we're sitting right now i believe is a out comparable to where we were pre-pandemic, so beginning of 2020. Yeah. yeah, and what's interesting about that is like the stock market basically became unhinged from pandemic. There was a very large, so... there was a very large spike in the middle of that for yeah, yeah, perhaps not the most grounded in yeah. reality reasons. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if you, I'm, I'm sorry if you just started investing during the pandemic because I don't think there's any real fundamental reason for that happening the way it did. Nope. And you're down on it, like. Your investment is down for really nothing other than your bad timing, yep. <laughs> which is yeah. life, but that sucks. And I've heard this repeated elsewhere, and so I will repeat it here. If you did think to get in at the beginning of the pandemic and managed to sell in the middle, congrats, first of yeah. all. But <laughs> but second of all, this does not really mean that you know what you're doing because everything Correct. was bonkers. Correct. <laughs> And as an example, I, I won't say the value of the money. It wasn't insignificant, but it wasn't significant either. It was, you know, it was like a thousand dollars in GME, but like I made a 400% return yep. on GameStop. Yep. That does not mean I am intelligent or good at this. Yes, yeah, exactly. Like on paper, your gains for that year were like fantastic. Insane. They were beating oh, like everything else out there. Yep. Could not do it again. But yeah, so compared to that, let's call it level over two years and very much down in the past six months to a year, savings yep. accounts are somewhere around 0.9 to 1% right now. They've been hiking up in the past month or so because of Fed rate increases. See episode yep. one if you want to know more. CDs, as I mentioned. I like how you're pointing there. Yeah, yeah, Like we have a YouTube video, <laughs> like I'm going to put a thing yeah. in. See the, the thing in the top right. Yeah. CDs somewhere around 1.5% for a one year. And then your I bonds are at 9%. Right. Those are your options. Right. So th yep. that's it. And your double E's at point one, as I yep. said before. This is why we brought them up. This is why they're so popular right now. One other thing that I actually did want to say real quick, I downloaded some data from, from the treasury, did some analysis on this. There was, right as you would expect, an insane uptick in Ivan sold starting about October, November 2021, where it jumped from under a hundred million a month in I bonds to $3 billion in January. So yeah, 30 xing the number of I bonds sold They're They're hot. <laughs> yeah, they're hot. They're hot. It's a crazy period to be in, but yeah, I think at this point, anything we say is going to be rehashing the point that we've already brought up. And so I think at this point, unless you have anything else you want to add, that's all, it's all that I got. Yeah. Same here. So I guess to sum it all up bonds. Right now, especially specifically I bonds are really the only bet you have. The market is still crazy. It's probably going to be crazy for a while longer. Stocks, your 401k, I'm sorry. They're going to be dead for a while. We're, we're sorry for your Just loss. Just hold fast. I'm not going to give advice on what to do with that. But if you are interested in this, especially with all the topics we've covered, you should consult somebody with a fiduciary responsibility, like a CPA or something like that, to actually discuss what your options are in that area. Um, that's not us. But yeah, thank you for listening to the Just Enough to be Dangerous podcast. We still need to get that website up for Q&A. But I'm Butler, and this is... I'm Nick Gregory. And uh, we will talk to you next week. We went on like 40-something minutes, and that's why I went at the end of the year. I was like, I'm going to bring this. I'm going to bring it in and close it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. 
Yeah, that's good. I think we landed right at 45 minutes. We're literally at 7.15. We started at 6.30 on the dot when I hard close, like hard open. So that's... Um, also, I'm going to stop recording. <laughs>